Revelation 20, verse 7 and 8 say that when the thousand years has expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. So why does God release Satan after the millennium to deceive the nations? Well, if you stay with us, you'll find out, because we'll be dealing with this question and many more. This is Steve Schwetz, and you're listening to the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. We hope that you'll be able to pull up a chair with an open Bible and an open heart as we listen to the wit and wisdom of Dr. McGee. Our first question comes to us from a listener in Los Angeles, and it reads, Could you please explain the difference, if any, between the sin against the Holy Spirit mentioned by Jesus and the sin unto death recorded by John in his epistle? Now, let's take those up singly. The Lord Jesus charged the Pharisees and the religious rulers in his day when they attributed to Satan the power that made possible his miracles. And he charged them at that time that they were in danger of committing an unpardonable sin. Now, that sin was one that could only be committed in that day. It could not be committed today. In other words, you'd have to have the same circumstances and conditions prevailing before that sin could be committed. And that, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ present and the Holy Spirit being the one that he's doing things in the power of so that you have two persons of the Godhead. Now, he's not present today so that it'd be impossible for anyone to commit that specific sin. Now, personally, I believe that it is possible for a person today to resist the Holy Spirit, to just keep on resisting the Holy Spirit of God. You remember he said, my spirit will not always strive with man, and that it's quite possible for a person to get to the place in their own life where the Holy Spirit no longer makes any dent or impression upon him at all. Probably at one time there was a certain amount of conviction, and it did not respond to it. And it is possible, I do believe, for a person to pass over a deadline, and that, of course, is unpardonable. But, of course, that is to reject God's remedy for sin today, which is the Lord Jesus, to reject the the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. But any person who feels they've committed the unpardonable sin or the danger of it, they can be sure they have not. As long as a person is willing to trust Christ as Savior and come in humble reliance upon Him, they have not nor can they commit the unpardonable sin. Now, the second part of this question says, and John refers to a sin unto death. 
Yes, over in his first epistle, you will find that John said that there was a sin unto death. In 1 John 5, 16, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. What John is saying here is this, that when you see your brother, that is, a brother Christian, commit a sin, you're to pray for him. You should ask God to forgive him because there is a sin that's not unto death. Now, if he commits certain sins, they are sins unto death. And it means that God will remove that individual from this earth by physical death. And the death, of course, that's referred to here is physical death. It's not spiritual death. There is a sin unto death. In other words, it's quite possible for a child of God to just continue on in sin and keep on going in sin so long and commit so much of sin that the Holy Spirit of God will take him home. Now, that's not, of course, the explanation of every death that you have among Christians. There are other explanations, but that certainly is one explanation. And I think we have one scriptural example of it, and that's the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira apparently were Christians. I see no reason to say that they were not Christians. And then they committed a sin of lying and they were struck dead. Now, that doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It just means that the early church was so holy that anyone with sin like that couldn't live in the presence of such holiness who had committed such a sin, and that was a sin unto death. Now, just what is that sin unto death? Well, for Ananias and Sapphira, it was lying. I have a notion for other folk it would be something else. In other words, I do not think that for all individuals it's the same. I think for each individual it happens to be a certain thing. Our next question also comes from Los Angeles. The listener writes, Is it possible for a Roman Catholic to be a born-again Christian and at the same time remain a Roman Catholic, continuing to participate in the rituals of the church? May I say that I believe that the answer is yes. It's hard to understand, but if you must recall that Peter, after his conversion, continued in the Old Testament ritual. We know he went up to the temple, and we know that he did not eat pork. You remember Paul had to rebuke him for that, for going back and eating at the kosher table even after he broke over with Paul on one occasion. So that we have that instance there. And then Paul himself, you remember, kept a vow and went up to Jerusalem. And we're told there, at least Paul was told, that many of the priests had turned to Christ, and yet they were still following the law. They're apparently going through the ritual. So it would be possible, and I believe that there are those. Now, when I first came to the Church of the Open Door, we started these midweek Bible studies that sprouted up in such a phenomenal way, a lawyer here in Los Angeles told me that he 
knew of a Roman Catholic priest from the East who came out here and was attending our midweek services. He came out on vacation every year, took off his collar that's buttoned in the back and his other garb and dressed like any other normal human being while he came into our services. And that took place here for two or three years. Now, whether it's still going on, I do not know because I never did know the man. He did not want himself naturally identified. And this lawyer knew him. Apparently, he'd come out himself of Romanism. And he knew this man. And he said this. He had talked with him that the man's position was, I can't do anything else today. I've been trained this way. I may be able to bear a witness and testimony. I will continue to go through the ritual and all that, although he was trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Now, you may want to criticize that man. That was my first reaction, was to be very critical of him, that he ought to come out and all that sort of thing. But I'm not to sit in judgment upon him, and I do believe that it would be possible. However, I do not see how they could continue to go on in that and certainly be happy and satisfied. However, I understood this man felt that through the confessional and other means, he was able to present the Lord Jesus Christ to a great many distracted and frustrated and overwhelmed individuals. And if that's true, then I must say I'd have to go along with it. We come now to a question from a listener in San Francisco who writes, Could you please discuss the passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 that speaks about being baptized for the dead? And I think that probably we should turn and read that passage first. And I'll begin reading at verse 28 in 1 Corinthians 15. And it says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, that means unto Christ, Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, he returns to his place in the Trinity. He came down, you will recall, and became a man, and now is ascended to God's right hand and is our intercessor. But after everything is consummated, why, he returns back to his position in the Trinity, which he had in eternity past. Now it says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Now what Paul is saying here hasn't anything in the world to do with water baptism at all. And somebody says, well, isn't baptism water baptism? No, may I say to you, the word itself cannot always be used in that connection. Now, if you are acquainted with the Greek language and you had a concordance or a lexicon of the Greek language, and would turn to baptizo and look it up, you'd find out that there were about 20 meanings to the word. And to just assume every time you see it that that's what it means, a ritual baptism, actually we have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's the real baptism today, of course. 
Now, what does it mean when it says they're baptized for the dead? Well, Paul in Romans, when he speaks there of baptism, actually he means identification with Christ. And that's one of the meanings of the word. It's used in the sixth chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin or died to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, actually, that means the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that when Christ died and we trust him as Savior, we are identified with him. His death was our death. Our death was his death. So that 1,900 years ago, Vernon McGee was crucified outside of Jerusalem because I'm a sinner. And that sin's been paid for. Now I'm identified with a living Christ who came back from the dead, and I'm joined to him. That's the whole teaching of Romans 6, 7, and 8, by the way. Now, here Paul speaks of being baptized for the dead. What he means is this. He speaks of this glorious future that is ahead of us, that when Christ is going to come and his kingdom set up, and eternity begins, well, in view of that, Paul is saying, if that's not true, then why are we today considered or identified as dead men? He makes that clear. He says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? We are identified with Christ. When Christ died, we died. Identified with a Savior that died for us, rose again, 1 Corinthians 15 emphasized the resurrection, and we are joined to him. Now, somebody says, can you be sure of that? Oh, my friend, may I say to you, right here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's already talked about baptism. And if we'll turn back and read that, and by the way, always consider the context of every verse of Scripture. Put it back where it belongs in the context in the chapter, consider the chapter, consider the book that it appears in and how it's used. Now, let me turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's already now talked about baptism. So we have some idea what he's talking about. And did he mean identification? All right, let's see if he did. In 1 Corinthians 10:1, moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and they were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Wait just a minute. Did the children of Israel get baptized in water in the Red Sea? No, they didn't. Fact of the matter is, it says they went over dry shod. That means that not only was the water moved back, but they didn't go over on wet sand. It was dry. That's the miracle of it. They didn't even get a drop of water on them. Not a drop of water. So don't take any comfort here that it could have been sprinkling. Nobody got water on them that went over with Moses. Now the fellows that got wet and really got submerged in water 
were the Egyptians. We're told which the Egyptians are saying to do. They were drowned. They got in the water. Now, the children of Israel did not get in the water. So we're definitely not talking about water baptism, are we, here? Well, then what does it mean? They were baptized under Moses. Well, when they came down to the Red Sea, the children of Israel saw the Egyptians coming, and they began to whimper and cry like a bunch of babies and said, let's go back to Egypt. The brickyards look good to us. And Moses went down, took his rod, smote the Red Sea, And when they saw what was happening, then Moses led them through. They were identified with Moses. And when they got on the other side, that bunch of crybabies began to sing the song of Moses. They're identified with Moses. And that's what it means here in 1 Corinthians 10. They were baptized under Moses, identified with him. Just as Christ went down through the waters of death, And we went with him because he took our sins. And he came out on the other side in resurrection. And we're joined to him, you see. And that's what he means in 1 Corinthians 15. It's just the same thing as you have in 1 Corinthians 10. The only thing is that some of the folk don't seem to think that 1 Corinthians 10 is in the Bible. So it's well to always take in consideration all the passages that are there. Moving on, we have a letter from a listener in Freeport, Michigan, who asks, During the millennium, the Bible says that Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit. Does this mean that there will be no sin on the earth during the millennium? And if so, why must Satan be loosed for a season to see whom he may deceive? Now, first of all, let me say that you think the removal of Satan and the demons means that this will be a perfect earth. You must remember that it was by man came sin, that it was Adam's sin. Certainly it was suggested to him, but he made the choice. And that sinful nature of man is not changed during the millennium. There will be many people enter the kingdom that actually will not be born again. They will be those that for the moment, They have bowed the knee to Jesus. He's come to reign. And then during that period, many are going to be born. And those that are born and live during that thousand-year reign, and I think will be quite a crowd of them, they're not going to be believers. They are going to have to be converted. Some will be converted. Others will not be converted during that period. You must remember the Holy Spirit will be here, and they will be converted during that period, some, but not all. Now, the devil is released at the end of the millennium because, you see, the millennium was a period of testing of man under perfect conditions. That's the thing, you know, that so many today, the psychologists and all unsaved people believe if you could just get a perfect environment down here, you'd solve all the problems of life and that everybody would be nice, good little boys and girls. But my friend, that period's coming up. And for a thousand years, God's going to show man that even under a perfect environment, perfect circumstances, and with him reigning on earth, even the heart of man is still in rebellion against God. 
And I think that's the reason Satan is released at the end of that period. He'll gather that crowd together. They are opposed to God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It cannot be obedient unto God under any circumstance unless there is a conversion. There must be a conviction of sin and then a conversion. And so what you have is the devil's loose just so this crowd will have a leader to gather around. And it'll show that man under perfect conditions didn't do too well even at that time. So that man in a perfect environment would not be able to please God, would not be able to become obedient unto God. And that will be proven during this period. But I remember what the late Dr. Chafer used to say when someone asked him the question, when God gets the devil chained and in the bottomless pit, why in the world does he let him loose again? And Dr. Chafer's answer was, if you tell me why God let him loose the first time, I'll tell you why God let him loose the second time. And I think both are pretty well the same. Our final question comes from Stafford, Texas. The listener says, My brother-in-law says that the Bible cannot be the Word of God because what is sin now had to be sin from the beginning. So God could not have allowed brothers and sisters to get married to populate the earth after Eve. He says he believes in God, but he also believes that many people were made at the same time, or maybe evolution. Can you help me with this matter? May I say to you that I rather think that your brother-in-law is not using the Scripture at all for his conclusions. To begin with, the Scripture makes it very clear there was only one couple created at the beginning. We all go back to one head. There were not many created. And certainly evolution as a science is pretty much discredited as a philosophy. Why, today it's still very popular. That's the reason today that a great many people feel like, well, situation ethics and the new morality today, that that's good because everything that happens is better than what happened the day before because it's onward and upward forever. And the old cliche that came up a few years ago, I'm getting better day by day. And of course, all of this, that things are going to be better for us tomorrow, that all fits into a philosophical pattern of evolution, of course. Now, as a philosophy, it's very popular, but as a science, it's discredited. So that those two explanations are not explanations at all. And we can say furthermore that God has not changed at all. What has changed has been man has changed a great deal as to his thinking. And at the beginning, the reason that it was all right for relatives to marry, and certainly Cain and Abel married their sisters. There was nothing wrong in that. Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. And it wasn't until later, as the bloodstream became polluted, you and I live in a race that is not improving. It's deteriorating. We're not on the way up, we're on the way down. And sin has its consequences in man today because instead of going up, he's going down. 
And it's dangerous today for relatives to marry. But back in those days, it was perfectly all right because you're very near creation. But there came a day at the time of Moses that God put down certain laws that relatives were not to marry. Did you miss any portion of today's broadcast or any of our previous broadcasts? Well, you can listen to them again by going to our website and following the links to our archived audio. Download the MP3, subscribe to our podcasts, or download one of our mobile apps for your smartphone. This question and answer program is really just a small part of our ministry. Our flagship ministry is our weekday through the Bible broadcast, heard every Monday through Friday on this station. You can find your local listings by going to our website for station information. If you've not yet joined us for these studies as we go through the Bible in five years, we invite you to do so. We would encourage you to ask to be on our mailing list for our monthly newsletter and our notes and outlines for each of our studies. You can do that by calling us anytime and leaving your voicemail request along with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. To contact our offices about any of our resources, ask to be on our mailing list or to express your interest in this ministry, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109, in Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1, or find us online at ttb.org. Now we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus came home, him I Sin had left a crimson This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network. 